Hosea chapter 14, starting at verse 1. Israel, return to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled in your iniquity. Take words of repentance with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our iniquity and accept what is good, so that we may repay you with praise from our lips. Assyria will not save us, we will not ride on horses, and we will no longer proclaim our thoughts to the work of our hands. For the fatherless receives compassion in you. God gives a promise of restoration here in response to a statement like that by saying, I will heal their apostasy. I will freely love them for my anger will have turned away from him. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like the lily and take root like the cedars of Lebanon. His new branches will spread and his splendor will be like the olive tree. His fragrance like the forest of Lebanon. The people will return and live beneath his shade. They will grow grain and blossom like the vine. His renown will be like the wine of Lebanon. Ephraim, why should I have anything more to do with idols? It is I who answer and watch over him. I'm like a flourishing pine tree. Your fruit comes from me. So let whoever is wise understand these things. And whoever is insightful recognize them. For the ways of the Lord are right. And the righteous will walk in them. But the rebellious... Stumble in them, says the word of the Lord. You can take your seats as you join me for another moment of prayer. God, we do thank you for your word. For the fact that your word includes calls, uh, pleas, invitations, repentance. Thank you that we find here in Hosea 14 and for all the truth that comes along with it. We thank you that in inviting us to repent, you haven't left us to to be ignorant about how it's done, but you give us instructions through passages like this for how it is that we can forsake sin and return to you. God, I pray that as we study this morning that our eyes and our hearts and our minds will be open to greater degrees of truth from your word to greater degrees of understanding about what true repentance looks like and how it is that we as your people can live in it. And God, I pray in that as we grow in understanding, that we'd also grow in obedience, that we would be a repentant people, recognizing that repentance yields so much for us that we could never find out of or right relationship with you. And God, we thank you for Jesus, for the fact that he makes repentance possible. The reason we're able to to come to you and to pray prayers of confession with confidence uh, that you will forgive us is because he went before us and has afforded our forgiveness by dying on a cross on our behalf. So we rejoice in his name today. We pray and ask that as we study the word that, that teaches about him, that points to him, that our rejoicing would increase, that our repentance would abound, and in each and every time we do, we find that you are indeed standing ready to say. I got to pray for my own heart and mind this morning. As I attempt to preach your word to your people, I need your help. Myself, am a sinner who is in need of repentance. And so I got to pray and ask that you would make up for all of my sinfulness, that you would make up for my inadequacies. I avail myself as a tool of yours, and I pray that you would use me well, Father. I, a mortal, 
unspeakable man attempt to speak on your behalf. I need your assistance. So Holy Spirit, would you work through me? God, would you bless me with unction, with clarity in mind, clarity in my words, a joy and, and a worshipful heart and invite your others to be, and invite your, the rest of your people to also be joyful and worshipful alongside me. We know that your word never returns void. And so we anticipate seeing what it will return today. Use me as a tool to bring about whatever it is that you intend to. I pray this, Father, for your glory, with dependence upon your spirit, and in the name of your Son. Help me as I seek to preach to your people. Amen. <clears throat> so being that I'm someone who doesn't have the greatest sense of direction, I've got a great appreciation for GPS systems. I mean, GPS truly is a fascinating thing, right? Like, if you think about it, it's, it's, it's a fascinating phenomenon that we have found GPS. Uh, pretty much anywhere you go in the world today, if you have a global positioning system, the global positioning system, the, the, the technology that it has, it can use a satellite in the sky to tell you what your current position is and then give you directions to tell you how to get to a desired position. It's a fascinating thing. But I was recently reminded that even a GPS system lets you down and misleads you if it's not up to date. Uh, a few weeks ago, my family and I took a trip uh, to the mountains with the Stoffers. If you're living in the rural mountains, you know that there's a couple of unique things about it. Uh, the first is that uh, there aren't many streetlights. <laughs> this is great if you want to go stargazing, but when you're driving at night, it makes it really hard to see. And another unique thing is that because of the mountains, there are a lot of curves and hills to, to go around and up and down. And you often can't see what's on the other side of a curve or a hill until after you've already gone up or around it. So you kind of get in the habit of, of, of just kind of driving first and asking questions later. And this can be a combination for disaster when you're driving in an unfamiliar place, especially if your GPS lets you down. Uh, we were leaving dinner one night. We all hopped into my truck. Uh, Terrell was in the back seat, pulled the GPS up on his phone. And so I'm just kind of driving, but I'm taking directions as I hear him call it out from behind me. And we get to one point in particular, Terrell and the GPS later telling me that I should take a left turn. But I'm looking at the left turn, and I'm not so sure about it because to me, it's more like a driveway than it does a road that you should turn down. But Terrell assures me, like, this is the way we need to turn. Like, you need to make this left turn. I'm looking at it on the GPS. She says to turn left. He was a man with the GPS in his hands. I'm looking at the GPS myself, so I do what the man with the GPS says, right? Well, I quickly learned that Terrell and his GPS were wrong. He ain't here to defend himself today, so I can throw him under the bus and not feel too bad about it. This turn that they told me to make actually was someone's driveway. And not only was it a driveway, it was a pretty steep, narrow driveway. I drive a decent-sized truck. So at the same time as me realizing that this was indeed a driveway and not a road, I'm also realizing that I have no way to turn around. I can't back up because the driveway is too steep. I can't turn left or right because it's too narrow. So my only option at this point is to continue down the hill with hopes that when we get to whoever's house this is, there will be a flat surface to turn around on and simply drive my truck back out without disturbing anybody. When we get to the house, it's not on the flat surface, nor is there room to turn around. 
The driveway is this long hill that just kind of goes up to their house and basically just comes to an end. It's like the house was literally built onto the side of a sloping mountain. And it just happens to be the driveway that we turned into. So my only option at this point is to drive past the driveway and get into the people's yard that was slightly, slightly flatter than the driveway itself. Like I'm hoping that, that if I get into the yard, maybe I can find enough of a flat surface to just do a, a quick three-point turn and be kind of discreet to get out of here without disturbing anybody. Well, that didn't work either. <laughs> I get into the yard, and because the ground is wet, my big truck doesn't want to turn easily on this hill. So I'm spinning up all kinds of, of, of yard, kicking up all kinds of dirt, having to go forwards and backwards, all while being only 60 feet from the front door of this house that I have no clue who lives in. And so at this point, I'm like, like we really got to get up out of here because I've heard stories about the mountain people, right? Like, this is how the, the, the horror movies start. Like your GPS system fails, you make a wrong turn, and then the next thing you know, there's a mountain man with an ax who's been waiting on his next victim. And so I'm thinking to myself, like, we really, really, really need to get out of this driveway. And I start to think about the mountain man, and, and, and as I do, the front door of the house opens. So now I'm convinced, right? Like, like this is one of those movies. Like, this is what we've gotten ourselves into. And so I refuse to look over at the front door. I'm looking straight ahead. I don't want to look to my left. I might see him with an axe. But then when I look over my right shoulder, I feel like a bad father because I see my son in the back seat. And he's all nervously kind of scrunched over in his car seat with his worried look on his face because even he could feel the intensity of the situation. <laughs> it's a bad thing, y'all. We'll drive, doing my best to turn around in all kinds of holes in this man's yard. He's standing on this front porch watching this happen. And Terrell finally says, like, hey, just, just, just let me jump out and go explain what's going on. So Terrell goes and explains. Uh, thankfully, this wasn't a mountain man with an axe. He's just a man with a badly placed driveway. So we get back to our cabin, and uh, Terrell was looking at the GPS directions, and he realized that, 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 that where the man's driveway was, there once was a path that had been used as a back road. So all of those problems, all of the emotional anxiety, all of these holes that have been left in that man's yard, it had been caused simply because the GPS had tried to lead us down an old path. Old paths don't work, friends. The last thing someone needs when they're trying to navigate to a particular destination are directions that lead them down an old path. What one needs instead are directions that are up to date. They need directions that lead down new paths. And that, to some degree, is what Hosea seeks to offer the people of God in Hosea chapter 14. This is our final week studying the book of Hosea. And as we come to this final chapter, what we basically find is a final call for the people to repent. The first 13 chapters show time and time again how the people live in sin and failed to repent after God had spoken through Hosea and given warnings that they needed to repent. We've seen time and time again that the people have repeatedly chosen their sin over God, and they're so given over to sin that this book of Hosea has at its core the example of Hosea's wife who repeatedly leaves him to go engage in prostitution, and throughout the book, God is saying to his people, when you sin against me, you're like Hosea's prostituting wife who chooses lust over love and whoredom over holiness. And so through the mouth of Hosea, God says to the people one last time in chapter 14, leave your sin and return to me. God's saying your old paths have, have proven to lead you into sinfulness and idolatry. Stop turning down those old paths and turn down new paths that will instead lead you to faithfulness and devotion and righteousness for the sake of right relationship with your God. So I've titled this sermon, 
a roadmap for repentance. Because that's essentially what Hosea chapter 14 is. Uh, we see all throughout scripture that repentance is this idea of, of, of having been headed the wrong direction on a journey that, that w- with sin that leads you away from God, but then turning the opposite direction to forsake your sin and head back towards God. So it's this kind of about face. Repentance is, is, is a spiritual 180 when you completely change direction to walk toward God. It's the idea of, 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 of turning and walking a new path of righteousness after you've been walking an old path of waywardness. And one of the things I love about Hosea 14 is that Hosea gives very clear instructions for you do that in this chapter. You know, there, there are several different ways for people to give directions, right? Like you ask certain people and, 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 and they start naming landmarks that can easily be mistaken or confused. You ever run into somebody like that? Like it's, it's the guy that goes like that. So, so what you're going to do is you're going to about three minutes from here. And after you've gone about three minutes, you pass a big hill and then four and a half bushes. And now right after those bushes, you'll see a little dip in the road. and You need to turn left at that, at that dip, okay? It's like, sir, I'm... I really don't intend to count bushes. I just, I just want to get to the gas station. Or you got those other people that, that, that start naming places as if, you, as if you're just supposed to know where these places are. You're like, hey, I'm not from around here. You give me directions to Walmart. And their response is something like, like oh, yeah, so, so Walmart. It's, it's, it's right across the street from that car wash over on 4th Street. I'm like, sir, I, I just told you I'm not from around here. Uh, I don't know where 4th Street is. And they do it again, right? So, oh, oh yes, I'm sorry. Well, what you need to do is you find the Walgreens on East Main Street. If you get to that Walgreens, keep going for three blocks, and the Walmart is on the right. So you just look at them, right? Like at this point, like they're not catching on. But then they do catch on, and they do it again. It's like, oh, I'm, I'm sorry again. You don't know where that is either. But if you drive past Monty Ruby's house, it's like, sir, I don't know Monty Ruby. Like, like, God bless you and Monty Ruby both, but I'm going to go ask somebody else for directions. Then there's a third kind of person. And they give better directions, right? Hosea is kind of like the third kind of person. See, this third person, they, they, they say to you that, that, that you should follow very detailed instructions. They give directions by saying things like, oh, so you're going you're to turn on this street, or you're going to go through this interse- intersection, you're going to veer right at this red light. Like, they give the good kind of directions. And Hosea in chapter 14 is giving really good directions repentance looks like. He provides a good roadmap for repentance with detailed instructions. He, he lets us know that the first thing we must do in following this roadmap for repentance is to actually repent. If we're going to use a roadmap to come to a place of complete repentance, we, we, we first need to recognize that we have a need for the roadmap and then place ourselves on it by simply making the decision to actually repent and turn the right way. Hosea's first instruction is simply to repent. You see, after he issues the final call for them to return to the Lord in verse 1, he tells them exactly what they should do in verses 2 through 3. Return to the Lord your God, Israel. That's verse 1. But verse 2, take words of repentance with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our iniquity and accept what is good so that we may repay you with praise from our lips. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on our horses and we will no longer proclaim our gods to the work of our hands for the fatherless receives compassion in you. So Hosea here, he lays out these directions for the people in the form of a model prayer that they should pray. I appreciate this as a reminder that sometimes in discipleship, it's helpful for people to be told exactly what to do. Like if you're discipling a new Christian and, and, and they're unsure how to pray or to faithfully interpret their Bibles or simply live the Christian life, you don't have to be afraid to give them very clear instructions about how godliness is lived out. 
And if you just happen to be that new Christian, don't be afraid to ask very specific questions about the basics or to observe very specific actions or of, of more mature Christians that you want to imitate. Uh, this is why when the apostle Paul spoke of his intentions for those that he was discipling in 1 Corinthians 11, he said he wanted them to imitate him as he imitated Christ. So friends, imitation and following very clear instructions are major parts of our faith. And I think it could be the case that some people don't reach maturity because they aren't giving clear examples or instruction for what maturity in the faith looks like. So Pioneer Church, just taking a light application from this first verse, like let's be a church that passes on and soaks up what might seem like even the most basic practices and habits of godliness. Let's be that kind of church. Hosea lays out the basic practice of repenting through prayer. And I do want to make sure we're clear here. Uh, the reason Hosea specifically tells them to take words of repentance is because their words mattered. It isn't that their words needed to be verbatim according to some uh, ritualistic prayer or vow, but, but their words did need to at least reflect the statements Hosea tells them that they should make. Uh, verse 2 has somewhat of an emphasis on the statement being made by the people. Take words of repentance. Say to God, you see in the second sentence, praise him from lips in the last sentence. So this, so this emphasis is, is showing us that the words of the people do matter. And we've seen throughout the book that at times, they've actually said one thing with words while doing a different thing in their hearts. Uh, in chapter 8, they were said to, to cry out and exclaim statements about them knowing God, when in actuality they didn't actually know God because their actions didn't show that they did. So the words haven't always been in alignment with their hearts. And I think Hosea here, he's, he's putting this emphatic focus on their words to let them know that they did need to make statements like these, the statements that are, that are, that are outward or important expressions, but these statements needed to be real, truthful expressions of eternally. And I think it must be the same with us as the people of God today. If we're going to adopt Hosea's roadmap for repentance, then we too must have words that reflect verses 2 and 3, but they must be offered as an expression of hearts that reflect verses 2 and 3. So when you sin, do you internally feel the weight of your iniquity? Do you internally feel the weight of your wrong? Do you internally feel the weight of having dishonored, displeased, disappointed, and potentially even disgusted God? Do you actually feel that weight about the reality of your sin? And do you recognize that how the reality of your sinfulness on your part can actually taint any good thing that may have been otherwise pleasing to God? Like Israel had tried to worship God while they sinned against him by also worshiping their idols and false gods, right? But you see that, you see that Hosea tells them they need to ask God to accept what is good because sin and idolatry, it taints true worship. Do you recognize that your sin also hinders your praise? Forgive us and accept what is good, God, so that we can praise you. The people needed forgiveness of past sins before they could move on with future worship, friends. And now, thankfully, we can have forgiveness of sin, past, present, and future in Christ, but the concept is sin and idolatry do not propagate worship and praise of the Lord. And the people here needed to feel the weight of that, they needed to form words that made known what they felt inwardly. Both are important, the inward and the outward. This is why we pray a prayer of confession most Sundays in our gatherings. Because true repentance, friends, means feeling the weight of our sin, then going in heartfelt prayer to the one who offers forgiveness from that sin. 
And this should be a regular practice in the life of all God's people. Don't ignore your sin and don't just think about your sin. Think about it, consider the weight of it, and confess it to God and ask for forgiveness that he alone can offer from it. When we get to verse three, the focus shifts to show us more of what should be going on inside the heart as we repent. Hosea tells the people to pray that Assyria will not save us, not ride on horses, and we will no longer proclaim our gods to the works of our hands. For the fatherless receives compassion in you. I'm not going to spend long here, but what we see in this verse is that Hosea is urging the people to put their confidence in the right place. They first needed to pray that Assyria wouldn't save them. Assyria was the foreign nation that the people had been trusting in to protect them from other nations that they went to war. And by acknowledging that, that, that they wouldn't be saved by them, they'd be acknowledging that they couldn't be sustained by other human beings. Then they needed to pray that they wouldn't ride on horses. Uh, the horses were a representation of their own military power. So their wars were, were fought on horseback and, and with chariots. Uh, by saying that they wouldn't ride on horses, they'd be saying that they couldn't even protect and sustain themselves. And then lastly, they needed to pray that they'd no longer make worshipful statements to, to the false gods and idols that they made with their hands. These false gods were one of the primary things that they were looking to for protection and provision. So if they prayed this prayer sincerely, they'd be acknowledging that these false gods weren't actually gods at all. So essentially, this is Hosea urging the people to take their confidence out of foreign nations, uh, to take their confidence out of themselves, to take their confidence out of their false gods. And if you don't place confidence in other people, false gods, or your own self, you're left with one place for confidence to be, right? And it's the right place. It's in God. So repentance, as we see it in this passage, not only involves leaving your sinful activity to return to God, it also involves leaving your other forms of security and replacing them with God. Like you've probably heard it before that, that, that one of the reasons we're tempted to, to, to give in to sin is because we fail to trust God like we're supposed to. We start to think like Adam and Eve in the garden, right? Like, did God really say, does God actually have my best interest in mind? Does God actually care and, 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 and truly know and desire what's best for me? Friends, those kinds of, of doubtful thoughts about God are the origin of sin. So when we want to repent from sin, we should seek to restore an undivided trust in God. Look at the last sentence of verse 3. For the fatherless receives compassion in you, God. That's a declarative statement of trust, right? Like Hosea is urging the people to pray and restore trust in God to be for them and to provide them with what no one else and no other thing could. That's an extremely important component of setting out on the roadmap for repentance. Trust in God is necessary and essential for ongoing repentance. And another important component is the embrace of restoration that God promises for those who truly do repent. If we're going to walk this roadmap for repentance, we first needed to decidedly repent, but then we also need to willingly be restored. In verses four through eight, we have God himself here. And he makes a statement of guarantee about what happens when his people repent. And I think it's important for us to lean in here because not only is it problematic when the people of God simply live simply without ever coming to a place of remorse over their sin and repenting, but it's also problematic when the people of God feel remorse over to repent, but never walk the full roadmap due to fear that God won't restore them from their sin. Listen, friends, God desires for you to be forgiven and freed from your sin way more than you do. 
Second Peter three verse nine says that God wishes for all to reach repentance. This is the reason God gave his only son, Christ Jesus, to suffer and die and be separated from him. Like he did it because through Jesus's death and separation, you sinner could have life and restoration. And so if you doubt that God desires or is willing to forgive and restore you from your sin, you need to really take heed to these promises here. These promises in verses four through eight, that tell of God offering forgiveness and restoration and a future of flourishing that is made possible because he sent Jesus as a savior to sinners who repent. And so even if you're here today and, and, and you've not ever repented before, like if you're here and, and, and you've not ever spoken to God with words of remorse about your sin, but you look at verses four through eight and you think to yourself, I want what these verses promise. I want to tell you today, friend, you can have what these verses promise. See, these promises were initially made to the sinful nation of Israel after they lived years of rebellion against God. After years of ignoring God's call for them to leave their sin and return to him. And yet God's still here. He still makes the promise to them, not because he expected that them repenting would suddenly make them good enough, but because he knew that them repenting would make them be covered by one who was good on their behalf. So it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what sins you've committed. These promises of restoration can be yours because they find their fulfillment in Christ Jesus. Jesus, friends, is the only human being to ever live a perfect life. He's the only one to ever be completely free from sin. And yet he came. He died to take punishment for your sin. And then he rose from death and went back to his father in heaven. And it's that father who speaks these promises in verses four through eight. And the reason we can have confidence in these promises being ours if we repent is because true repentance is always accompanied by faith in Jesus being a sufficient savior and that faith hides us in Jesus. Having that faith, friends, means that when God looks at us, what he sees is the perfection of Jesus. That's what repentance gives us. Repentance gives us this restoration and faith. This is why in 2 Chronicles verse, uh, chapter 7, there's another promise from God that if his people call on him and humble themselves and pray and seek him and turn from their wicked ways, he'll forgive their sin and heal their land. This is why in Acts 3 verse 19, there's a promise that repentance allows sin to be wiped out and it brings refreshment from him. This is why in 1 John 1 9, there's a guarantee that confession of sin grants forgiveness and cleansing from sin. This is why the book of Proverbs, friends, teaches us in chapter 28 that when one confesses and forsakes their sin, they obtain mercy from the Lord. These promises can be yours today, not because you're worthy of receiving them, but because Jesus is. And Jesus stands on your behalf when you repent and trust in him as your savior. So these promises are offered to you today if you come to God the Father in Christ. So what are these great promises, right? God promises in verse four to heal the people of their greatest illness, their, their sickness of apostasy and sin against him is to love them freely with no conditions and to turn his anger away from them, to, to, to spare them from the wrath that they actually deserve because of their sin. And then he says that he'll be like the dew to them, that they'll blossom like a lily and take root like the cedars of Lebanon. Those are major statements, beloved. Like dew in, in the ancient, ancient Near East was a really, really big deal. I was talking about a place that experienced almost zero rain during the summer months but it had a climate that was unique enough so the dew wasn't like the light dew that we experience here. Their dew was like, like puddles on the ground that allowed plants to, to be sustained during the summer months. This is why Gideon, in, in, in Judges chapter 6, he picks up a fleece that was soaked with water after he left it down on the ground overnight. So the dew, friends, was a significant source of moisture. It was, it was a necessary pattern of water for plants, and God says that he's going to be that for his people if they repent. He'll sustain us. 
he'll provide for us so much so that we'll blossom like lilies, one of the more prominent flowers in all of the ancient Near East. And also so that we'll take root like cedars, which is the most massive, most durable, most fragrant tree in all of Israel. And in look six, repenting and being covered by Christ will make you like a tree whose branches spread and, and you'll be like the olive tree, which was known for beauty and strength and, and durability and was a symbol of peace. And it even yielded oil that was used in fuel for fire and temple sacrifices. So I think, friends, that this is God saying that for those who repent, he, he promises to make them strong and durable and fruitful, but also restored their purpose. No longer will, will, will the products of our lives be wasted, but with repentance, the products of our lives will be restored and will used like oil from the olive tree. That's great truth from God. That's great truth of, of restoration that we as his people get to receive and rest in, in him. And then look at verse seven. It goes on. He says, the people will return and live beneath the shade of those who repent. And the repentant people's renown will be, like, will be widely known, he says. I think this is providing a picture of how our repentance won't just yield our restoration, but it will also be used to lead restoration in others. When we repent and trust Jesus in faith, God uses our lives as a testimony of his faithfulness and others who see that might also repent and trust in Christ. So God, that your repentance might just be used for the good of more people than yourself. We need to repent and be restored for the glory of God good of our own souls, but then also for the potential good of other people. And there's nothing better, nothing better that we could do or know in this life. All of this goodness and these, all, of, all of these restorative promises, they're found in God and in God alone, friends. And God asked a question in verse eight. Ephraim, why should I have anything more to do with idols? It is I who answer and watch over him. I'm like a flourishing pine tree. Your fruit comes from me. Remember, Ephraim is another name that, that is used to, to refer to Israel. And Israel is the group that God is addressing here. And so this is God kind of sticking his chest out. And he's reminding the people that he doesn't belong on the shelf with those lesser false gods that they've been worshiping. Why should I be placed among them, God says? I'm the one who watches and protects and provides for you. Everything good that you have and, and everything good that you produce, it comes from me, God's saying. So this is God making a final command through Hosea, forsake those false gods and come back to worship me, the one true God. And then the Lord offers a fitting conclusion in verse nine. That whoever is wise, understand these things. And whoever is insightful, recognize them. Ways of the Lord are right. And the righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble in them. I think this is God giving the people a kind of final exhortation to have resolve. These people needed to have resolve. Uh, that means that they don't need to hear this prophecy and keep ignoring it like they had been, but they actually needed to take heed to it. After this verse, the prophecy from Hosea ends. And you can see from what the verse says that there will be some who take heed and respond in the way that they're supposed to. And there will be some who don't. There'll be some, the wise who recognize the significance of this prophecy and walk in the ways of the Lord. And then there will be others, the less wise, the rebellious, who continue to stumble in unrighteousness. So friends, as we conclude our study in this book of Hosea, I want to give a chance for all of us to make sure that we're among the wise. 
in the same way that Hosea's contemporaries would have had to do something with this prophecy. Like, like once he prophesied it, they would have had to do something with it. You couldn't ignore what had been spoken. And in the same way that they had to do something with it once it had been spoken, we need to do something now that we've come to the end of our study. We need to do what Hosea beckons his readers to do in this final chapter. We need to repent. If you've been with us at any point over the last 10 weeks, then you've probably seen how this book shows the utter hatred that God has for sin. And my hope is that that's shown you your utter need to be repenting of sin. See, it seems from verse 9 that God intends for the conclusion of this prophecy to kind of mark a, a defining moment in the lives of those who hear it. And it can be that for us today. On this day, all of us in this room, we can resolve to repent, be restored, and then be empowered by God's spirit to walk in the righteousness that he calls us to. It could be the first time for you today. If it is, we praise God for that. I rest assured that when you repent from your sin and turn to Christ, his promises of restoration are sure for you. So if that's you this morning, I'd love to know. I'd love to pray with you before you leave this place. So, so don't leave without telling us about how this new resolve has now become yours as you seek to live righteously. And if you're here already having made this resolve in the past, this morning should still be a defining moment for you. See, repentance isn't a thing that God's people do a single time and then leave in their past. For as long as we live, until we're made perfect in heaven, we should be fighting sin by repenting, rejoicing in the restoration that God gives, and resolving to live from that restoration by pursuing greater degrees of holiness as God gives them to us. So the bottom line is that all of us have reason to repent. And so I urge you this morning, don't let this defining moment pass you by. I'm going to invite Pastor Brogan to come back. And I know we usually go into the Lord's Supper at the end of a sermon, but because we're coming to the end of the book of Hosea, I just want to pray for us. Pastor Brogan's going to sing a song of reflection, and I encourage you to sit where you are. Reflect on the reality of your sin, repent of it, receive the restoration that God wants to offer you, and then resolve to go on living for his glory by the power of his spirit. I'll come back up after a couple of verses of this song, and we'll partake of the Lord's Supper together. Father, we do give you thanks for your word. And again, for the invitation that your word gives for us to repent. And I pray that as we take time and think about our own sinfulness today, that you move in our hearts and give us the gift of repentance. And I pray that you'd help us to feel the weight of our sin, to grow hatred for it that reflects your hatred for it, and then to repent of it. But God, I also pray that as we do, we rejoice in the restoration that you've promised us from it. We know that we, not, we don't have to be left with our sin because Christ Jesus is gone and he's taken it for us. And he's offers, offering us righteousness in exchange. So God, I do pray that as we reflect that our hearts, our minds, the entirety of our beings would be fully overcome with the reality of who we are outside of Christ, of how we sin and displease you, but then also the reality of who you make us when you hide us in him. Rejoice in what he's done and in his name today. So we pray in that name. Amen.